Um, I'm Jamie. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Jamie. Man, I I wouldn't be sober today if it wasn't for the the relationships I've got to make in AA uh, with people like Jim and some other friends here tonight, Scotty and Greg, and my buddy Craig here, Gavin. But um. And I'll get into that. I, I'll get into that. I, I, I need, I can't do it by myself. And, and um, I'm fundamentally delusional about what's going on around me. And I don't, I don't mean that in a self-denigrating way. It's, it's just the truth. Um, and I didn't know that until... I got introduced to and worked the steps. Um, so I'm gonna start with what it was like. I, I think that uh, I think that my condition started before I was born. My mother's father was a severe chronic alcoholic, and he died when he was 47 years old. And um, my grandmother and him had um, nine kids. Now they had seven kids. So my mom has three sisters and three brothers, but I never got to know him, um, but I know he beat the shit out of my grandmother in front of my mom a lot, and there's probably a lot that I don't know. Um, but I know it affected her and continues to affect her. And so it affects me. It affected me. Um, there's mental illness and drug abuse and alcoholism on my dad's side of the family, too. And um, so I think I was set up, you know, for this condition like before I was born. Um, and I say that as just as facts. I, I don't say that as an excuse for the choices I've made and the solutions that I've tried. Um, I've never been able to handle how I feel, and 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 uh, and I do not like to be uncomfortable at all. And. I was the first kid born out of my mom's brothers and sisters, so I, I got all the attention when I was born. And I, I got real used to that, I think. And, and that, that happened, like, right away. I mean, I don't even remember all of it. But um, I had a cousin right behind me, and then I had a sister after that, and then, you know, all my mom's uh, you know, brothers and sisters started having kids. And, so I wasn't the center of attention anymore. And, and I think that was probably a profound experience for me because I like attention and I like validation and all my self-esteem comes from what people think about me. And um, so it was probably a little bit of a rude awakening to not be at all about, all about me, you know. 
man, uh, I think I've gotten some relief in this program from that. Um, I was born in 1972, and I didn't plan on living this long. And one of the struggles for me today is living life on life's terms. I'm like, I'm behind. Um, and I'll get into that too. But this program is like essential to that. And without those skills, I, I, I won't. I won't make it to be an old man. Um, and it's working. But anyway, yeah, I, the first time I, I tasted alcohol, I think I was five. And so that would have been 1977. And my grandpa, my, my, my dad's dad and his brother, and my dad were drinking beers and I remember it distinctly to this day. My, my grandpa was drinking a Mickey's Big Mouth and they gave me a sip to watch my face turn sour. And, you know, ha, 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 see the kid like get repulsed by the you know, alcohol and, and, uh, and I liked it. And I still remember to this day that it tasted salty and kind of warm and good. And, and I took it with both hands and I started to drink it like water. And um, my grandfather pulled it away from me and then I asked if I could have one. And he said, if you can go in the kitchen and, and get one out and open it yourself, you can have one. And this, the, like, they had the big pull tab on them, you know, they were really, it's hard for a five-year-old to open one and I tried. I went and got one out and I tried to open it and I fought with it. And I couldn't get it open, and my grandfather came in, and I asked him to help me open it. I really wanted it. And, uh, and he was like, no, you can't. So that was the first time I tasted alcohol. It was one of the times I relapsed, too. I chose Mickey's. out of every, I hadn't had a drink in three years. I'm like, out of everything I could have chose, I chose fucking Mickey's. <laughs> <laughs> That's what kind of drunk I am. <laughs> um, you know, I grew up in a codependent, dysfunctional family and uh, struggled with a lot of resentment about that. And um, my mom has a problem with men because of what she experienced as a kid. So when she had my little sister, my mom had a chance to relive her childhood through my sister. My mom grew up in poverty and didn't get to do the things she wanted to do. My mom was on the baseball team like in junior high and she they would have one pair of shoes a year and she wore flats and would put cardboard in them and her friends would like make fun of her and ask her, like, why are you? Wearing flats, you know. that was all she had. So, my mom wanted to be a dancer and a ballerina, so that's what she made my sister into. And uh, my sister was her favorite, and my sister still is her favorite. And um, that was really difficult. Um, 
for me. Um, that being said, like, it's taken me so long to see, and I've got to experience this, a little bit of this freedom, and I'm still working on it, that uh, my mom and my dad did the best they could. And uh, she probably, like, she's working with what she had, you know? And this program has given me the, the, the freedom the tools to accept responsibility for myself and my condition now. And um, I wouldn't be able to do it without it. But uh, yeah, so that was hard. Um, I grew up in town, I grew up in, a, in Salina, Kansas. My mom was from Riverside, California, and my dad was from Salina, Kansas. So I grew up in, in a small town, about 35,000 people. And uh, it was a great childhood. Like we lived in town until I was in third grade, which is 1980. And uh, you know, I got to trick or treat in, in the 70s, you know, all night without worrying about getting accosted or anything like that. And the high schoolers would drive their muscles cars by and throw water balloons at us and shit. And it was like it was awesome, man. <laughs> like, it was awesome, and. Uh, you know, it was rock and roll on the radio. My folks had an awesome record collection, and they both loved the Beatles and and, uh, and Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath. And, and, and they also loved all the country music that was coming out then, like the real shit, like Willie, Willie Nelson and Jerry Jeff Walker and, and a lot of stuff that happened here. So, like, I, I think I had kind of a connection to this town, like, back then, even watching Austin City Limits on TV. But anyway, I, I, I remember like when I was young, like I didn't get it, man. I, I, I remember hearing like my folks and the adults would like listen to music and and uh, and it just sounded like just noise, like sound to me. I didn't, didn't hear like the melody or the harmony or the rhythm or anything. And then, and then one day I heard it and it, and it, it was the song Babies in Black by the Beatles, and we were on a road trip to California, and my folks' muscle car, and, and that's when, I, like, I felt it, you know, and it made me feel good. Um, and the kiss was, like, huge then, and I love, like, monster, monster movies, and, and so I thought they were great, you know. I love Godzilla and shit. And, <laughs> and uh, Gene Simmons looked like that. Yeah. And so uh, I got into Kiss. My dad would play poker with my uncles, and uh, and uh, I would listen to like they would sit me down with like the eight track machine, and I would listen to Kiss Alive, like over and over and over and over. I'd sit there for four hours, like with it going, and like never got old. And like eight track would just run. It has no end. And. Uh, and so they would have to take me from it. And then I got to watch like Fast Times at Ridgemont High and The Road Warrior, you know, like, and like my uncle was cool, man. So I got, you know, I got, I was immersed in counterculture, you know, and then um, we moved out in the country and we moved out north of town in my hometown and I, I lost all my friends and I was stuck out there by myself after school and I didn't have anyone. And my mom was taking my sister with her to dance school and, and and they were doing that thing their thing and she was 
Grim and her. And so I ended up finding, like, I didn't have cable TV anymore. I didn't have any friends. And I didn't know what to do with myself. And, and it was really hard. And then you know, I eventually found my folks' record collection. And, you know, I was listening to that and um, starting to use that to change how I felt. And then, and then I found my dad's electric guitar. He had this cheap, barely playable electric guitar, and I and I and he told me not to play it, and and I, I got it out and I started like figuring out how to play it, and um, and I started to get good at it. I thought, and like I played it on my lap. It had three strings. I used my thumb. I figured out some melodies, you know. And I'd been playing horn at high school, at, at band at school. And, <coughs> It was coming to me easy, and, and I thought I was good, you know, it's like cocky. And Dad said, you should put all the strings on it and, and learn how to play chords. And I remember like going, well, why? I already know how to play it. And that's, that's kind of my thing, you know, like I think I know it all. Like I got to know absolutely fucking nothing about anything. And I trust my own subjective perspective more than anything else. And that's why I'm in here. <laughs> so anyway, like I, you know, I was 12 when that started happening, and um, and I knew right away that's what I wanted to do, and um, and so the, that's what I decided to do. And my folks were like, "Well, maybe you should consider." You know, as time went on, I got better at it. I was, I was. I could never get my parents' approval or validation. It was never good enough, right? And and uh, and I was like, "Fuck you!" You know, I know what I want to do, and I'm good at this. Like, I uh, learned how to play jazz pretty much on my own. I have, I've had a total of like six guitar lessons in my life, but I learned how to play jazz. I got into high school jazz band. Um, I won an award at the Kansas City Jazz Festival. I was getting all this, like, I got offered a record deal, and I was really getting, like, the validation and the approval I wanted, and I knew that I was good at it. And I, and I, and I, and I just felt like, man, if I, my parents could just see that I'm good at this, they would love me as much as they love my sister, and, and, and I could make them understand, and everything would be okay. <coughs> and uh, it didn't work like that. And and uh, and like they shot me down, you know. I got offered a record deal in like 1988. I think it was 88. It might have been 89. And they were just like, no. And they weren't there, you know. And that that you know, I just I really felt misunderstood and not seen by them. But I was getting the validation from legitimate sources, you know, and so I knew I was good at what I did. And that really, like, fucked with me, man. Like, I felt crazy. And, I've, and, and I think there was some gaslighting going on. And I, and I say that, like, I, I know there was, you know, I've been through therapy, but, like, again, I want to say, like, that was the best they could do, you know? And I... My mom and dad's priorities were like, they don't want me to not starve 
they wanted me to have every material thing I wanted. And so, like, I really did live like a king. We're, we're probably like upper middle class. But uh, I just wanted love. So I didn't feel like I got that. And I was pissed off about it. And I hated my parents. And then I, then I started drinking in high school. First time I drank, I blacked out. It was, Mil it was old Milwaukee. We got a case of it. And like, I scared my friends and I blacked out. And um, that's what it was like every time. Um, I found weed, started smoking weed all the time. Um, got a, I used to like write papers for the girls that sat around me in, in lit and in English class. And, the, and uh, I would sell them book reports and then I would use that money to buy drugs. And then I, I went to college and it, it didn't take me long to flunk out. I took LSD the first week I was in, I was in school and it gave me a nervous breakdown. And uh, it, is, it instilled a fear in me that I think is still there. That's, that's, that's how it affected me. I, I have a fragile constitution. Some people can handle that drug. But I had to take it 15 times to make sure. Because <laughs> I'm an addict, man, you know? And like, it, uh, if that was all I could get, and it was one in the morning, then we would take acid at one in the morning, and in the next 12 hours, like, make it stop, make it stop, make it stop. Let's do it again, you know? <laughs> but uh, that was around, around the time, too, like, I got, I, I, you know, I started drinking. Like alcoholically, like well, like in mass quantity. It was drink al alcoholically first time I had it, I think. And um, I became a daily drinker real quick. Um, I flunked out of college, and um, I got a DUI, crashed a truck in front of a cop, and um, I was a real good-natured drunk for the first like ten years. Um, one of my mom's friends went to get trained to be a police officer, and they had two videos that showed all the cadets. One of them was a belligerent drunk, and the other one was me. Wow. And, 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 and they showed an example of what a good drunk was, and the only reason I know that is because she was a family friend, and she told me that later. And, uh, yeah, I... I I, I knew I was alcoholic, and I, and I took, like, I wore it like a badge of honor, you know? I was like, yeah, I'm an alcoholic, you know? And my heroes were, and, and rock and roll, and, like, Keith Richards, and and uh, all my favorite music was, like, drug-influenced, and uh, a lot of it still is. And, um, and so I was like, fuck it, man, I'm going to be all right, you know, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it big, you know? And, um, and I made it big into drugs and alcohol, and that became my highest power, and that became my priority, and my life went down the toilet, and I squandered my 20s. But it was also fun, and, and it, was pretty, it was pretty wild. I, I, would, I was a vagrant, and, and I, I used to gypsy around the country and work odd jobs in the 80s and the 90s, and... Um, and uh, get drunk every night, and, um, and then I ended up in Austin in 96, 
and it was starting to get really bad then. And uh, I remember waking up every morning like with a crippled, crippling hangover, and before I went to work and going, "Fuck, man, I can't do this again. Today. I can't do this again today. This is killing me." I was bloated, and my kidneys hurt all the time. And I'd learned to shoot up by then, and, and I was doing like real risky shit, like copping drugs and needles and shit from strangers and shooting up behind a dumpster down like off of Congress and while I was waiting on the bus and you know, real reckless shit. And um, that got real bad and came to a head in 99 and uh, I decided to stop and, um, and that was when I went to AA for the first time. And um, I went there and I remember this guy talking about like he was miserable it was a meeting off of um, South Congress in 290, and um, and I remember that guy told me, "Man, if if you don't do this thing, you're not gonna you're not gonna get any better." And uh, and they were talking about God, and I was like, "Man, fuck this!" You know, these people wanted to hug me and shit, <laughs> and I didn't know who they were, and I was like, but I didn't know how to make a boundary, and. Um, I didn't like it, and so, but I, so I kept smoking pot, and I moved back home for a year and saved up money and bought a car, lived in my parents' house and lived with a friend of mine for a while, and kept smoking weed and going to AA, and I thought AA was just about go to meetings and talk about how you feel, and you just go to meetings every day, and, and then I'd read the steps and be like, oh, okay, I have to apologize when I, like, fuck up, and, and I thought I was doing it, and I, and I white-knuckled off of booze, but I was getting high and, and, and I was starting to do cocaine more and more and I did that for three years. I, I moved back to Austin and and, um, and then it, it got real, real bad. Um, I was wrecking cars. I was using more and more cocaine. I was starting to shoot up um, a lot and, um, and I was like buying drugs in Mexico and taking real wild chances and um, and then when I was 35 years old I had a you know I had like a dream girl I thought and and we were getting high all the time and I taught her how to shoot up and she almost died one night and um, and then we just kept getting high as soon as she like got out of the bathtub and the ice and shit in there and then I got hep C and, and my that was when I was like, my luck ran out, and uh, I got real sick. And I'd been sick of it for a long time, and I didn't know how to stop. <clears throat> and um, and I and I knew too that I I hadn't reached my potential on the instrument, um, even though I'd been playing in bands and making records and. I knew that my priorities were off because when I was young and I started playing, like, that was my first spiritual experience. Like, I started playing music for validation, but it was real quick before I realized, like, I was really developing a relationship with myself. But it was the guitar, like, I projected that in the guitar, and I still do. Like, that's my truth teller. If I'm working hard enough and I'm disciplined, then it speaks for itself, and if I'm not, it doesn't. It will not do for me what I can't do for myself. So 
then I, I, you know, I realized that, and I realized, oh, that's like what makes you, that's what integrity is. And, and that's always been important to me in music um, since then. And uh, so anyway, yeah, I knew I was like compromised, and I knew that I couldn't really play what I was capable of. And then I got hep C, and I'm like, all right, this is a window of opportunity. And I could either keep getting high and die, or I could get sober. And I chose to get sober. And, um, and I had friends, one of my friends in the band I was playing in at the time was it in Narcotics Anonymous. He was a recovering heroin addict. He had six years clean. So I went to N.A. with him, and there was this guy there, and he was telling me that I needed to find God. And it was God again, right? And I was like, oh, okay, you know, and he was telling me, you know, what was going to happen to me if I didn't find God, that I was going to relapse. And I was like, oh, you know what's going to happen to me. Okay. And I watched him, like, relapse. And, and I was like, yeah, cool, I got this. Fuck this, man. But one thing that stuck with me in that program was that first step. And I learned about the, uh, the momentary lapse of reason, you know, where you like, you don't see it coming, man. And then you, fuck, how did I get here again? And, um, and I was like, I know what that is, man, because it's happened a lot. I recognize that. I could relate to that. So I learned how to spot it. <clears throat> and I white knuckle myself through that every fucking time it happened. And I did that for eight and a half years. I stayed dry for eight and a half years. I got clean. Um, I used my will to get clean. And um, I thought that's what being sober was. I thought being sober was being a high achiever and not putting drugs in my body. And I was a fucking monster. I was restless, irritable, discontent. I had a four-year relationship with a woman that we loved each other, but we were real sick, man. And I was a fucking asshole to her. And uh, that's what she was used to, because her dad was an addict, you know, go figure. Like, water seeks its own level, man. And like, man, I just, I, I, I was like, God, it was hell, man. I was pissed off at everything, everything that happened to me. I was completely dependent on the outside world to be content. And I thought if I could just manage well, I could just fucking explain to these people what they were doing, that they would do what I wanted them to, and that would be okay, and we could get some shit accomplished. And, and we did. You know, like I was a great manipulator, and I could get shit done, and people feared me and stayed working with me because I was talented, or they feared me and they're like, fuck this guy, and they would stop working with me. I've been the best guy in the band and been fired, like, so many times. And that's happened to me before working the steps, and it's also happened to me afterwards. But now I have the tools to, like, see that and deal with it instead of blaming. So, um... She left, that didn't work out. And I thought, you know, I ended up getting like, two most important things in my recovery, like the windows of opportunity that have driven me to the point of desperation where I did this. First one, I worked the first step and because of hep C, 
I stayed dry for eight years. The second one um, was I finally met a fucking woman that dated me that was out of my league. And, and some people that know me and I've done the work on this, like say that I put her on her pedestal, but the sponsor I'm with now and the more capable I've gotten of being more and more honest with myself, she was out of my league and she was healthy enough to leave me. And, and, it, and it was at an age too, like where I knew I probably wouldn't get another chance like that. And so that happened, uh, and you know, I was dating her, and I was like, I had, I've been able to achieve like a skill level I'd never been able to achieve on an instrument because I played 10 hours a day for, you know, the dry time I had, and could finally play all this jazz that I wanted to play that was out of, out of my reach when I was a practicing junkie and not a practicing musician. And, and, um, and I was in bands, and I did all the big shows, and played in front of a thousand people, and, all this shit that's like pleasurable and fleeting, but not sustainable. And then I had the girl, the gear, all this vintage guitar shit that I always wanted because I had the money for it, finally. And I remember sitting in my living room one afternoon and going, man, what's missing? I got all this, you know, and I'm like, it's like missing. And so, so I started smoking weed again. And that was four years ago. And uh, she left me. And uh, and she lived in the apartment above me. <laughs> and that's, my, that's one of the hardest years of my life, I heard. <laughs> it was bad. Uh, her bedroom was above mine. <laughs> and um, it was real bad, man. And she... Uh, she didn't want she didn't want me back and um, I white knuckled myself off of weed because like after six months I was like fuck man this like almost lost my job I was irritable all day and I wouldn't get high until after work because I work with kids I teach kids how to play music and, but I was a fucking asshole all day man and I was like impatient and mean and uh, it's like a it's like a fucking like the like the drill sergeant in full metal jacket, you know. Like, <laughs> it was bad, man. I was just, like fucking completely delusional. And um, white knuckled myself off of weed, and um, and then uh, I became suicidal, and I was going to do it. And and one of my friends brought me back into the program. She goes, "Man, Jamie, come on, man. You should come to this meeting." And so she took me over to this meeting called 1313 over um, off of South Congress. And um, that's how I got back in the rooms and I heard some people speaking my language and I started talking to them. And, and, um, and I was desperate, man. I just wanted to feel okay. I just wanted to feel okay and I never felt okay. And I knew that I wasn't gonna be able to endure a lifetime of that. And I was really reluctant about the God thing, and I couldn't get around that. And uh, I worked this step with my first sponsor that I worked all 12 steps with, I picked him because he had a law degree from Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. 
and I knew I couldn't win an argument with him. <laughs> and man, I'm that guy, like, I love him so much, like, I would not be here today if it wasn't for him. He uh, went fucking round and round with me. I, I don't think I was an easy person to sponsor. And he would never tell me that because he didn't want me to take pride in that. Because <laughs> I, I do, you know, like, I, like I'm, I'm different. <laughs> I'm terminally unique. And, and so we went round and round with that. And, and I had a hard time with that because I knew that his higher power was Christian based. And I don't want nothing to do with that. And uh, so I felt like he was trying to backdoor me into, into that. And I didn't trust him. And, um, and we, we quickly had, like, a, a miscommunication about, like, what our higher powers are. And I think he was, like, starting to tell me what my higher power was. But I was also, like, so new that I was like, what's my higher power? I can't find this fucking power. So he was trying to help. But he turned me on to the Tao Te Ching. And, and that's, I've been real comfortable with that. Um, so... That year, I, I was suicidal, I had a gun. Him and uh, my friend Chris Gates talked me out of my pistol one night. And, because um, I, I had, I had uh, decided that I was gonna kill myself. And, and it, it brought me a sense of peace that I'd never had before. And the book talks about the jumping off place. And, and that's a real, that's a very real thing. And, and since my experience, like going through that and coming out on the other side of it, like, I, I hear that's common. So I would suggest if that happens to you, don't be ashamed. And also don't trust what that's like because it will pass if you do the work. You know, and I'm really glad now. Actually, I own a gun now. It's awesome. <laughs> like, I love firecrackers and I love guns and I love like, I'm still a big, you know, I'm a kid, you know? I like that stuff, man. Um, so yeah, he got me through the steps and then I went through the steps with another guy named Jonathan Prince. And, and I love him too. And, and um, but I had the same problem with him, you know? And, I, you know, I didn't trust him and, and, and he was trying to share his experience with me. And I was hung up on the God thing. I wanted to know what it was. I wanted to know what this power is. Like, I haven't felt this fucking power, man. What's this power? And and some of the like, some of the wisdom I've heard in here is like, you don't see it working in your life, but others will. Like, you'd be the last one to see yourself change. And all I knew was like, I had to do stuff different. So those guys should help me work the steps. And, and, and do an inventory. All these steps are like critical. Um, the most powerful ones in my experience have been four, nine, and 12. But you have to do them all, you can't just do those. And they're in order for a reason. You can't just go straight to nine, because one through eight, in my experience, got me spiritually fit enough to do nine. Because if I still have some resentment or I don't know what to do and I don't have a script to stick to that I've gone over with my sponsor, that shit will blow up in my face and I'll get pissed off at somebody when I'm making amends to them when it's time for me to listen to them. Um, 
I really encourage you if you're new to do these steps. So there were like three people that in my there were three people that fucked me. Like fucked me. Like my first fourth step was 77 entries. And I would say 70 of them were my fault, right? Like it was clear, like my part was like, I was way off base, man. But there were five of them that were like, I was the innocent victim, right? I will take victimhood and place all my character in it. And, 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 and I'll place all my self-esteem in that because that's what I used to do. And that doesn't serve me anymore. It doesn't make me feel better. So anyway, three of these, there were these three guys. There were two guys I was in a band with that like kicked me out and stole the tunes I wrote. And then this other guy joined the band that was famous and they got like a lot of attention for it. And I fucking hated them. Like they would have been better off like fucking my girlfriend. Like I was like fucking, they stole from me man. And I ended up making amends to them later, each one on an individual basis. And I don't hate them anymore. It's fucking remarkable to me that I don't hate those guys anymore. And I can run into them now and there's no fear. And I don't really care, man. It's okay. And it's that I don't have the power to not hate somebody. So I have to work the steps on it. I, I remember like the first time I really started getting drunk, man, it would like change like how I felt. And, and I could be who I wanted to be. I wasn't uptight, and I was confident, and I was at ease. It was a spiritual experience. And, and it worked. And that was my solution until it took over. You know, and then I, like, found other stuff to, like, balance it out. You know, take some up to go with it down and, you know, be a laboratory, you know. But um, this stuff works the same way. It's just slower and it's not on my time. I didn't realize until I did the steps that I drank to change how I felt. I did not know that. But that's fundamentally like why I drink, because I can't stand how I feel. What could it? The ledger's a lot different now. Like I have a lot more peace now in my life than discomfort, but still get really uncomfortable. And when I'm uncomfortable, like, I don't know what to do. And fear takes over. And, and I'm, I'm hostile when that happens. And I'm irrational. And I make things worse. And it's delusional, too, a lot of times. I perceive fears and threats that aren't real. And so through the fellowship, people like Craig and Jim, you know, and, and Scotty, you know, like these, these guys are my truth tellers, you know, and I need them. I rely on them and I call them and go, man, this is what's up. And I, and I run the columns and, and, and they help me see like what, what I'm doing. And then I, I have the chance to respond differently. And I've got through some really hard shit that way. I got through, I got robbed this year, and, and uh, I got through it, man. It passed, and I ended up getting my shit back. But uh, that would have ruined it. Like, I don't, it's just incredible, man. I can't do this myself. The sponsor I'm with now, um, he lets me have my own higher power. He showed me how to do an effective inventory, which is step four, and it's also in step 10. And like, 
it's an amazing thing. Like, it, it helps me see who I really am and the good and the bad. And I think that I'm getting some recovery. I think that, like, I'm becoming more comfortable in my own skin and that I'm not basing my self-esteem and my achievements or how good I am at stuff or whether or not people like me um, or like aging. I'm having a real hard time with getting older. I didn't plan I didn't I didn't plan on being alive, you know, now and like and it's you know, it's like it's okay, you know. <laughs> it's starting to feel like a privilege, like slowly. I've heard people say that, but um, I'll tell you if you're new. Oh, I don't think I don't ever think about drinking or getting high anymore. I'm totally in a place of neutrality. I've been around. I've seen people shoot coke. That was one of my favorite shit. And I've seen people do that in front of me, and like. Nope, not a solution. I don't even have to try. Um, I'm around drinking and drugs, you know, a lot in my line of work. And totally, it's amazing, it's cool. Part of my experience with that from the eight years I had drive was like, time does that to you. There's nothing like, in my experience, is supernatural about that. You know, supernatural like higher power did that. Time will do that. But, what I need the steps for in my experience. I can't use my will to find peace. I can't feel peace. I can't go feel peace. I gotta do the steps to, to have peace. And when I have peace, I don't feel like getting there. And that's been my recovery. And then the whole God thing, the power is in the steps. It's the action of the steps. That's what it is to me. That's my higher power. There's a lot I don't know. I don't feel threatened by people that believe differently than me. That's their business, and my higher power is mine too. And I would say, like, if you're like reluctant about this program because of the, the archaic language of the book and, and, and what you may hear or may not hear at meetings, that doesn't matter, man. All that matters is if you do the stuff and, and you listen and you find the people that speak your language, um, you can get sober. You don't have to, like, be a slave to that fucking shit every fucking morning. Like, it's like, I'm so grateful. Like, I don't know. Um, I think I have a little bit clearer idea now of what is my business, what I have the power to do, uh, what my power of choice is today, and then what's out of my hands. And I don't fight a fucking battle. I can't win as often. But I still do. I got to call that guy. I got to talk to that guy when I see him, and that guy, and a bunch of other, well, a handful of people. And um, it works, it really does. Um, and I think that's it. I really appreciate y'all uh, listening to me tonight. Hell yeah.